You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Dolores Lynch and Lynn Madden. Sunday, the 16th of January, 1983, there was a house fire at Hammond Street, just off Clanbrazel Street, in an area of Dublin's south inner city, known as the Black Pits. At 20 to 5 in the morning, neighbours notified emergency services that number 15 had gone up in flames. It was a small, two-storey red brick mid-terrace home. The three people who had been in the house at the time of the fire all died. Kathleen Lynch, 61, and her sister Hannah Hearn, who was 67, were both found trying to shelter in an upstairs room, and they had passed away from smoke inhalation after suffering extensive burns to their bodies. Dolores Lynch, 34, and the daughter of Kathleen, had managed to escape the house with the help of neighbours. Early that morning, the neighbours had heard a noise and when they went out into the street, they saw the blaze through the downstairs window of the Lynch's home, opposite where the fireplace was. The two men were able to get into the house, but the stairs were engulfed with flames by the time they got there and they couldn't get up them to save the women. So the two men went back through an adjoining neighbour's house and jumped the wall into the backyard of number 15. They could see Dolores in the upstairs window, and so they climbed onto the flat roof of the kitchen extension and pulled her from the house. The men had a hard time helping her out though. It took about five minutes. She was so badly burnt it was hard to grip her. Throughout She was screaming for someone to help her mother. When the men finally got her free of the window, all they could do was lie Dolores down on the flat roof and wait for the ambulance. Paramedics had to carefully lift her down on a tarp from the roof. Dolores was in bad shape and was first brought to St. James's Hospital, but was then transferred to Dr. Stevens's but Dolores died from her injuries on Sunday afternoon, just a few hours after her rescue. Four units of the Dublin Fire Brigade were required to put out the flames and to contain the fire to number 15. Thankfully, they were successful, and the neighbouring houses did not catch. The Lynch house, though, was gutted. Initially, the cause of the fire was unknown. Forensic tests were carried out, though it was suspected that a spark from the fire in the hearth might have been the culprit. Investigators were sure that the fire had started downstairs. On the 20th of January 1983, the women's funerals were held in their local church on Francis Street. Reports in the news the following day revealed how Ms. Lynch was a local activist. 
She had been working for a number of years to improve conditions for Dublin sex workers. She herself worked on the street for a number of years and campaigned for the establishment of a government rehabilitation centre for sex workers and for increased safety and protection from harassment and assaults. Dolores had started her campaign after the murder of a young girl working the streets named Teresa Maguire in 1978, and she was known by the other women who worked on the canal as the Women's Liber. The Minister for Justice had refused to meet with her group, saying that such a meeting would require that he discuss matters that were sub judice. The group called for the decriminalisation of prostitution in Irish law and the removal of the act of loitering by a prostitute from statute books. They also asked that the names of women who were brought through the court system not be published, due to the stigma they and their families might suffer. After her campaigning began, Dolores moved from working in and around Dublin's canal on the south side to taking a position as a cleaner. Dolores moved back home with her mother and had just months before she died in the fire met the Pope. It was a highlight of her life. Dolores's friends described her as a lovely person, saying that she was always laughing and joking and that she had a strong sense of social justice. It wouldn't be unusual to find her chatting about social issues in one of the cafes or restaurants in Dublin known as haunts of left-wing social reformers. The Irish Times reported on the 21st that Gardy thought that the fire was not malicious, but the paper also disclosed unconfirmed accounts that the women's home had had another recent brush with a possible house fire when lit fire lighters had been put through their letterbox a number of months before. In a quick turnabout on the 27th of January, a Thursday night, and less than a week on from that report, John Cullen, 32 and with an address in Kilbarrack, was charged with murder and arson at a special sitting of the Dublin District Court in the Bridewell. It emerged that Cullen was already out on bail, and so he was remanded in custody at that time. Five months later, in June of 1983, John Cullen was before the courts in what seemed to be an unrelated matter. His brother Cornelius Cullen had been charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice after giving a sum of money to a woman named Elizabeth or Lynn Madden. Lynn was Cullen's girlfriend. He lived between her flat in Ballymun and the home he shared with his wife and children in Kilbarrack. She was to deliver the money to a Mr. Thomas Carlyle, who was proposed as a witness in an upcoming criminal trial in February, where John Cullen was facing charges relating to a serious assault. Lynn Madden told the court that she was staying in a flat in Ballymun when Khan had come to see her, asking if she was going to name John Cullen as responsible for a stabbing in the year before, 1982. Khan told her that the witness, Carlyle, knew that she and John had £8,000 in a joint account, the proceeds of Lynn's sex work in Dublin City Centre, and Tommy Carlyle wanted it in order to keep quiet. Khan said that Lynn was to withdraw £1,000 from the account and give it to Carlyle, 
but said that the full amount would have to be paid to Carlisle to get him to not go ahead with his case. While Lynn Madden was on the stand, she was accused by his defence lawyer of just trying to keep Con in jail. She said she was afraid for her life, but she was telling the truth. Khan told the court that her testimony was a load of lies. He said his brother had asked him to withdraw some money. John had just been arrested and he thought he might need it, but the rest had never happened. John Cullen later got three years for the stabbing, but his brother Cornelius was found not guilty of paying off a witness. And then in the first week of October 1983, John Cullen's trial for Dolores's murder and the arson began before Mr. Justice Finlay and a jury of nine men and three women. The state argued that Cullen had set fire to the house with the intention of killing Dolores Lynch. He had been motivated by revenge for the fact that Dolores had given evidence against him after Cullen had assaulted her. He'd been found guilty of wounding with intent to maim and was sentenced to two years for that incident. Details of the assault would emerge later. It had happened seven years previous. Dolores had refused to pay John Cullen and another pimp a sum of money. They'd found her sitting in a cafe on Bagot Street and attacked her with a broken bottle, cutting her hand badly. After the attack, Dolores had gone to the Gardee. And so a few weeks later, Cullen had once again cornered her in a KFC. Cullen asked for a bottle of Coke from the staff at the counter and was given a can instead. Nevertheless, he bashed Dolores over the head with it. When he got her to the ground, Cullen repeatedly smashed the can into Dolores's face. Again, she went to the guardee and had him charged. Cullen's bail was revoked. Dolores was attacked once more in her home when men in balaclavas broke in and told her not to go to court. That time, the beating was so severe that she was left unconscious. But Dolores wouldn't give in to the threats and was determined to go to court and get justice for Cullen's attacks against her. Lynn Madden was to be the main prosecution witness. She had been present on the night of the 16th and, in fact, had rendered assistance to John Cullen. But in his opening statements for the prosecution, James Carroll, senior counsel, said that Lynn was not facing any charges in relation to her actions that night. In fact, she had been granted immunity by the state in order that the one who bore the most moral culpability be convicted. Lynn took the stand and told her story. She said that the night of the fire, John Cullen had taken Madden from her flat in Ballymun by car to Clarence Mangan Road at about half three. Cullen had also brought a hold-all bag with what were described in court as incendiary devices inside. Once on Clarence Mangan Road, Cullen had located the house directly behind number 15 Hammond Street. Lynn said she'd been afraid that they were headed to Dolores's house, but when they pulled onto the street filled with large, semi-detached homes, she thought maybe she'd been wrong. 
John Cullen gained entry to a gateway, which gave access to the back gardens of the larger homes on Clarence Mangan Road. Once Cullen and Madden got in there, they had access to the back wall of what Lynn would later learn was number 15, the Lynch's home, and the small yard at the back of that house. The bag that Cullen brought with them also had a hammer, a butcher knife, and a Stanley knife in it, but John didn't need to use these items as the window in the back of the house had been left slightly open. Lynn told the court that she'd stood lookout for him. Lynn admitted to holding a torch for Cullen, helping him to climb the walls, which were topped with glass shards and chicken wire. The back bottom window was open and she saw him place two rigged up firelighters into the house. But despite her help, and according to the prosecution, Cullen was the sole and only motivating force behind the crime. He'd had two plastic containers filled with petrol. Each had a firelighter taped to it, with matches stuck into each one. Then, as they stood outside the back of number 15, John took cigarettes and pulled the filters off them, placing them over the matches. He then lit them to slow the matches burn, giving him time to get away once he'd placed the firebombs into the house. Lynn recalled that it had taken a few tries to get the cigarettes to light because there was a bit of a breeze. Lynn recalled that she'd ran as soon as she saw the flames shooting up, and she'd heard glass breaking and screaming as she fled. Then she and John got into the car and sped away. He threw the bag out of the car as they drove. In the car, she'd asked him what he'd done. Initially, John had told her to mind her own business, but then he'd said, quote, I'll put it to you like this. Wait until you see the news tomorrow. If I have the right house, you'll know all about it. If not, well and good, End quote. They then disposed of John's clothing and shoes down the rubbish chute at Lynn's flat, but subsequently they threw the lot over a cliff at Port Ran. Lynn went on to tell the court that she'd also heard Cullen make threats against Dolores the Christmas before, and he'd said he'd twice before attempted to start a fire in the house. The first time he'd made an attempt, the firelighters had been put through the letterbox, and they went out. The second time he said there were too many people around for Cullen to carry out his plan at all. Cullen had described Dolores as, quote, a squealer and a rat, end quote. When Ms. Madden was cross-examined by Mr. Barry White, senior counsel for Cullen, she denied that she was lying to get even with him. She told the court that she'd met John Cullen three years previous. They used to go drinking with a group of friends in the Brayhead Hotel. The two started going out, and Cullen would spend most nights with her, despite his wife and kids in Kilbarrick. Her background and work experience were brought up. She'd been a sex worker for 20 years. She'd lived with a man with whom she had three children, Johnny Gray, but denied that he was effectively a pimp for a number of women, saying they'd lived off her earnings alone. After a number of years and after attention from the Sunday World newspaper, Johnny Gray had left Dublin. Dolores Lynch had moved in with her then. 
they had been friends for about 15 years. Lynn said that the two women had only argued a few times, one time being over children's allowance. And Lynn admitted there were a few for robbery and one for forgery of a post office savings book, and another for welfare fraud. Lynn Madden vehemently denied on the stand that this was her way to get back at John Cullen after Cullen had told her he was leaving her, and she denied the suggestion by Mr. Barry White that it had been some other man with her the night of the firebombing. A pathologist gave evidence that Ms. Lynch had tragically died of shock and pulmonary edema due to extensive burns covering 85% of her body. A fire officer who had responded from Dolphin's barn told the court that he had found burned debris from the stairs area of the house travelling into the centre of the room. The seat of the fire had been the last step beside the rear window. There was no fire damage around the hearth and the fire that had been heating the house had long since died down to embers by the time the house fire had begun. The state argued that the position of the fire had been intentional to stop the women from being able to escape the fire down the stairs and out of the house. Agarda gave evidence of the results of his search of the property. He'd found three boxes of matches in the backyard, a book of matches near the back window, and inside at the foot of what once had been the staircase was an intact fire lighter, two pieces of unburned coal, and burnt plastic. Nora Corcoran, Dolores's sister who lived with the three women, had been out on the night of the fire. Her evidence was that when she returned home that Sunday morning, the house was ablaze. She'd shouted through a broken window at the front of the house for Dolores, Hannah and Kathleen, but there was no response. By that stage, she said, there was thick smoke in the ground floor of the house, and while she looked inside, she saw flames leap up and the staircase collapse. She also told the court that as far as she was aware, there were no firelighters kept in the house. Grace Trimble, a neighbour of Lynn in the flats at Ballymun, and her close friend, told the court that she'd seen Lynn and John Cullen the following morning. The couple had visited her. Lynn had also told her what had happened and said that she hadn't wanted to go with John, but that she was scared of him. When Grace asked John if he'd heard about what had happened to Dolores, John had said to her that anyone who rats deserves to die, and that fires were best because you got rid of all the evidence. Lynn had told her that John said he expected to be pulled in by the guards after the fire because he thought that Dolores had made written statements that if anything happened to her, it was John's doing, and she'd left a letter to that effect with her solicitor, too. A Garda witness who was present for John Cullen's interviews immediately after his arrest also gave evidence. Cullen had been arrested at his home on the 26th of January. He told Gardie that he was in bed in his home in Kilbarrick at the time of the fire and had no knowledge of it or anything to do with it. He said he'd watched the Late Late Show the night of the fire and had seen some drunk doctor come out to be interviewed. 
Gardie pointed out that, never mind the fact that The Late Late Show was on a Friday, that particular segment had aired well before Christmas. John insisted that that was what he had watched, nevertheless. He said that the following morning, he'd woken up at around 10am and stayed home while his wife and kids went to Mass. Cullen denied having women work for him on the canal. When Cullen saw Lynn at Kevin Street Garda Station, he'd said, quote, She would not be here, only for me. I did not tell her where she was going. She would not have come if she knew it was Dolores Lynch's house. They were friends, but I hated her for doing the rat on me. End quote. Mr. White put it to the guard that his client had in fact said no such thing, and the Garda denied this. The Garda also told the court that when asked by Gardee if he'd set out to kill Dolores Lynch, Cullen had replied, quote, I thought they would make it out of bed. I did not intend what happened. I did not want them dead, end quote. The officer had also related that Cullen had at one point during the interview asked what the maximum penalty for malicious wounding was. When the Garda said he didn't know, Cullen said that he would, quote, take a bow for malicious wounding if he thought that he would get no more than 10 years. The Garda said that he took this to mean Cullen would be willing to plead guilty in those circumstances. Then Cullen gave evidence himself and admitted that he had been in trouble with the law a number of times. He'd served a number of prison sentences. Again, Cullen told the story that he was at home in bed with his wife on the night of the fire. He denied having a grudge against Dolores and said that the guardie insisted to him that he'd done it and that he had wanted to hurt Dolores. He said, quote, They were putting it to me that I burned down the house, which I denied at all times. End quote. He said that when he saw Lynn at the Garda station, she'd gone off on him and called him a bastard because he had gone off with one of her friends, Grace. On cross-examination, he denied he was in fact telling lies about the Gardee and that he had ever had any hard feelings towards Dolores. Then, Cullen's wife, Judy, took to the stand and told the court that her husband had returned home at around midnight the night of the fire. He'd gone to bed and she'd joined him about an hour later. She insisted that her husband didn't leave the house that night. Barry White gave the closing statement for Cullen's defence. He said that there was no forensic evidence of the fire having started maliciously. The evidence against his client was based primarily on statements by Lynn Madden, and he said given her background and previous crimes, she was someone who would be quite prepared to perjure herself in court. Not only that, but the DPP had told the court outright that she had been granted immunity from prosecution. White also suggested that there were police officers who would be prepared to quote-unquote bend matters. The jury should trust Mrs. Cullen, John's wife, a woman who had never been in trouble in her life and who had sat in court throughout the trial. On Friday, after closing statements, the jury retired to consider their verdict. But after five hours, the foreman returned and informed Mr. Justice Finlay that one of them was ill and they would not be able to continue with their deliberations. 
He told the judge that they were satisfied they would not be in a position to reach a verdict, and so Mr. Justice Finlay recorded that the jury had disagreed. The trial would have to run again, and so the case was put down for mention on the 26th of October for a new date to be set. They'd all have to go through the whole thing again. The new date for the new trial was fixed quickly, to begin on the 7th of November 1983. Mr. Justice McWilliam was presiding this time, and Mr. Rex Mackey took over as senior counsel for the defence. A fresh jury of eight men and four women were selected, and opening statements began. The prosecution outlined their case to the jury and said that John Cullen must have known the effect of lighting a fire underneath the only stairs in the building. This time, Lynn Madden broke down on the stand during cross-examination and said to Mr. Mackey, quote, I'm sick and tired of everybody calling me a grass over this. There was no deal whatever. I did not know. Until the 30th of March, I was not to be prosecuted. Furthermore, I don't care if I was prosecuted. Three women died in the fire. At that point, she looked up at Cullen and said, He set fire to it, and he is sitting there laughing. Lynn said that the only thing she was promised by police was protection, which she got. She'd been under 24 hour police protection for the previous 11 months because she feared Cullen and his associates. Lynn told the court that John Cullen was Dolores's only enemy, the only pimp in Dublin she'd pissed off. He was the only one who had beaten her up. Dolores had caused a bit of a stir among the streetwalkers in Dublin, telling them that they should try and get out of the game, or at the very least, stop handing over all of their money to violent pimps. But... Her advice had fallen on deaf ears, and nothing much had changed. Dolores wasn't targeted in any way for this, and she'd left the life behind her. After giving her evidence, when Madden was escorted by a plainclothes policewoman from the stand, where she had to pass close by to the defendant, his senior counsel objected, saying that the actions had prejudiced his client. Mr. Justice McWilliams told Mackey that he hadn't even realised that the woman in the courtroom was a bangarda, and so dismissed the complaint. The following three days of the trial were taken up with legal argument behind closed doors, and so Tuesday, the fifth day of the trial, the closing statements were delivered. Rex Mackey told the jury that they had heard some shocking insights into the seedier side of Dublin's nightlife, and that his client was a man of bad character. But all of that must be put aside when they considered the evidence in the case. In order to find John Cullen guilty, the evidence alone must convince them. He said, quote, You must not allow yourselves to be swayed by the disgusting and disgraceful elements to which you have been subjected. That is immaterial, end quote. Mackey argued that the state had simply failed to make their case out. The only evidence they had was the testimony of someone who, if her evidence was true, was an accomplice to the fire setting, and who had every reason to lie on the stand. If they did find that Madden was an accomplice, it would be dangerous, the barrister said, to convict his client 
on the basis of uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice. Madden had not even been able to explain the long period of time between when Dolores supposedly angered Cullen and the date of the fire. Mackey said that, in fact, Dolores was not liked by the pimps running girls in Dublin, none of them, and so they all had reason to want her out of the picture. Mr. Justice McWilliams then gave his instructions to the jury, reiterating the care they must take when considering the uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice. He said, however, that they were entitled to convict should they be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Further, there was no corroboration of Miss Madden's story which put anyone but herself at the scene of the house fire, but there was evidence showing that the fire had been intentionally set. The jury must consider whether they found her to be reliable and truthful in her testimony. On Wednesday, the 16th of November, the jury retired. After seven hours and 20 minutes, they returned with their verdict. John Cullen was found guilty of both the charge of maliciously setting a fire and of the murder of Dolores Lynch. He was remanded in custody and his sentencing took place the following day. Mr. James Carroll for the DPP wanted to present evidence to the judge in relation to the charge of maliciously setting the fire. Mackey protested, saying his client had been convicted of murder and was to serve life, so there was no need to read the court the full list of Cullen's past convictions. Mr. Justice McWilliams said that he had heard a lot about Cullen's character throughout the trial. He continued, quote, This is one of the most serious offences that could be perpetrated, leaving aside the murder. The fact of setting fire to a house with people in it is just simply appalling. I could not, in a case such as this, give less than 15 years. The crime was committed without sympathy for anyone or any feeling of compassion. In relation to the murder charge, Mr. Justice McWilliams handed down the mandatory sentence of life in prison. Leave to appeal was requested immediately on the grounds that uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice is insufficient to uphold a conviction, that uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice of bad character was insufficient to sustain a conviction. They also noted that this witness had been granted immunity. It was argued that the verdict of the jury couldn't be supported by the evidence and that they had not given proper consideration to the instructions of the judge. But leave to appeal was refused, with McWilliams saying he fully agreed with the jury's decision. But just days after the sentencing, Cullen was back in court. He wanted an injunction granted by the High Court against McGill magazine who planned to publish an article relating to Dolores Lynch and Lynn Madden. His legal team argued before Mr. Justice Costello that the matter was off-limits, given that the case was yet to be heard before the Court of Criminal Appeal. Cullen's solicitor, Mr. Allen, had got wind that Lynn Madden had signed an exclusive contract with the editor of McGill, Colm Tobin, and that part of the material she would supply for publication related to matters that were still before the court. 
If an article such as that was to be published, it might therefore prejudice Mr. Cullen, they argued. Mackey had explained that if the article being prepared would not in fact prejudice his client, all McGill had to do was bring it into the court to read. It was his understanding that the issue was to hit the newsstands the following day. An affidavit from Cullen's solicitor was presented to the court where he outlined having called the office of McGill only to be told that Mr. Tobin was not in. The person he spoke to on the phone didn't deny that the article was being prepared and told the lawyer that McGill's solicitors would surely read it before publishing to ensure it was safe for publication. She also told him it was too late to make any changes anyway as the issue had already gone to the printers. Mr. Allen had explained that if the article was prejudicial, he would have to get an injunction issued against it and suggested to the receptionist that if he could perhaps read the article and if he found that it wasn't prejudicial, the matter would be settled. But he was told that Mr. Tobin was the only one who could authorise that. He tried calling back to speak to the editor a few times, but each time he was told Mr. Tobin wasn't in. In his affidavit, Mr. Allen stated he believed that Column Tobin was avoiding him. A temporary order of injunction was granted. The editor of McGill was notified by telephone, such was the concern that the article would be published before the order could reach their offices. The following day, the High Court reserved judgment in the application for an interlocutory injunction. This time at the hearing, McGill had furnished a copy of the article and the judges and Mr. Cullen's lawyers were allowed to read it. Afterwards, Rex Mackey said it was much worse than he had feared, with the article supplying a type of corroboration that had not been presented at the trials. Mr. Justice Barrington commented that if he found himself sitting in the Court of Appeal after reading the article and was called to hear Mr. Cullen's case, he felt he would have to disqualify himself. Lawyers for McGill argued that there was nothing new in the article. Everything in it relating to Cullen's guilt or innocence had already been presented in open court. Other articles had been written about Cullen, and in fact this article was actually about the life of Lynn Madden. He said, quote, What they are saying here is that after a man is convicted of murder, I am not entitled to comment on it. I am quite prepared to take my risks with the law of defamation. End quote. In the end, Justice Barrington decided that the article should not go ahead until after Cullen's case had been heard in the Courts of Appeal. His decision was effectively a better-safe-than-sorry approach, saying it was possible that judges hearing the appeal might be influenced by the article and that if a retrial was to be ordered, it would influence potential jurors. After considering precedent, Barrington decided that the High Court did have the jurisdiction to issue such an order, and although the article was Ms. Madden's story, it did touch on aspects of Mr. Cullen's case and appeal. And so, according to the High Court, McGill would be barred from publishing the story. Less than a week later, however, the Supreme Court set this decision aside. The Court of Appeal, they said, would be considering issues of law. Its judges would not be influenced 
by the contents of an article telling of Lynn Madden's life. The setting aside of the decision was not to be taken as approval of the article, but the judges of the Supreme Court could not impede the freedom of the press in this manner, they said. There was a course of action in civil law if Mr. Cullen felt that the article was defamatory. And so, on the very same page as the Irish Times report of McGill's victory in the Supreme Court, there was an advertisement for the magazine, the idea of Vincent Brown, who owned McGill at the time. It read, By permission of the Supreme Court, McGill, a woman in gangland, the story of Lynn Madden, the woman who watched her pimp burn down the house of ex-prostitute Dolores Lynch, the story they tried to stop. The McGill article was shocking and shed light on what it was really like to be a sex worker in Dublin at the time. Lynn Madden described her early life moving between her mother's houses and children's homes in England and her route into sex work, which came from a desire to be independent. It also came from the knowledge she gained in various institutions that there was money to be earned for a pretty young girl and that there was less of a risk of doing time compared to petty theft and shoplifting. In fact, Lynn had returned to Dublin from England because she could earn more money here. The McGill article delved into things that were only hinted at in the trial. She and her partner, Johnny Gray, moved to the city with their three children, and Lynn was able to support their family from her earnings. Johnny drove a fancy car, and they lived in a fancy area. The kids went to private school. Of course, all was not well, as Johnny was violent and subjected Lynn to regular beatings. And what seemed like a fairly stable situation given the circumstances did not last long. Johnny wanted Lynn to stop working because the kids were getting older, and so they decided to try a post office fraud scheme. They got caught and skipped town going to England to avoid jail, but they lost everything, and eventually Lynn decided she'd go back to Dublin to work. In the time she spent away, both in prison and in England, an English operation had moved into Dublin. Lynn and the other Dublin girls ran the new English women off and sparked a struggle between the English pimps and the Dublin ones. Johnny moved back to Dublin with the kids, but shortly after that, an article appeared in the Sunday World, naming him as an underworld baron, running women in Dublin and attacking other sex workers who had come from England. The English girls were interviewed. Lynn and Johnny tried to get an injunction against the Sunday world, but it failed, and Johnny moved back to England. Dolores Lynch moved in with Lynn to help out with the kids. Johnny came back for visits, but local thugs would show up at the house and threaten him, because they'd been mentioned in the expose story. It was too dangerous to stay, and so the family moved back to England and bought a house. In 1976, though, they were running low on money, and Lynn had to return to Dublin, where she worked all week before returning to her family in Birmingham at the weekend. Lynn was exhausted. When she'd get home, all of the household duties would be waiting for her, along with a beating from Johnny. 
after a year of trying to support her family this way, she left. She stayed in Dublin. And along with Dolores, she began associating with some activist groups, feminists and prisoners' rights organisations. She began a relationship with another man, Dave, who beat her up. He spent all her savings and she was afraid of him. So much so that she once barricaded herself and her son in their flat in Ballymun, and when it was clear that Dave was going to break through the door, Lynn tried to escape from a third-story balcony by sliding down a washing line. She broke her foot when she hit the ground. Then Dave found her and attacked her. He stabbed her in the forehead with the scissors, and when she was on the ground, he stabbed her four more times. She was brought to hospital, and it was there that she met John Cullen. He had arrived with a friend of hers, Claire, to visit. After her recovery, John pursued Lynn. Her friends had told her to stay away from him, that he had a temper, but unlike most other men Lynn knew, he could be demonstrative in his affections and she fell into a relationship with him, despite his explosive temper. On Sunday the 3rd of January 1982, John Cullen's violent temper came into sharp focus. Lynn had gone out to a pub with friends without asking his permission. Afterwards, they'd all gone back to another woman's flat, her friend, Grace. Three men were there, Tommy Carlyle, Anthony McConnell, and Davy McConnell, Grace's partner. John Cullen arrived unexpectedly and immediately picked up a knife, slashing Lynn across the ribcage. Then John stabbed Tommy in the armpit. There was a struggle, but Cullen was after Lynn. While she was on the ground, he came at her with a knife in each hand, trying to slit her throat. The other men tried to intervene. Grace and Lynn fled along with Davy. By the time Cullen left, Tommy was found unconscious on the stairs of the flats and Grace's home was covered in blood. Later, John would tell Lynn that the only reason he'd left was because he thought Tommy was dead. He'd planned on returning to finish Lynn off herself. Along with the revelations about life as a streetwalker working on the canal, Lynn described her ordeal the night that Dolores's house was set on fire and related the terror she felt when John told her to get in the car with him. She said that she was horrified when she realised that it was Dolores's house they'd gone to and that Dolores and her mother and aunt had been killed. She thought for sure that she was next. And John's behaviour did escalate after that. It was as if he knew that his actions that night were the beginning of the end for him and there was nothing left to lose. He did what he wanted and what he wanted was violence. Lynn had told her friend Grace what had happened, though in reality Grace had guessed that John had been involved when she heard that Dolores had died. The women whispered together outside of John's earshot and when Grace asked him had he heard about Dolores, Cullen said he was delighted that she was dead. A few nights later, John found out that the women who worked on the canal were making a collection for Dolores' family, a few pounds each just to show their sympathy. John was livid. He told them to stop, but they wouldn't. Between that and the impending trial for his stabbing of Tommy Carlyle, John was wound up tightly 
According to Lynn, John raped a number of women who were working down at the canal. The day after Dolores's funeral, Lynn answered her door to a number of men who were looking for John. He'd apparently taken her friend Grace Trimble the night before and no one knew where the woman was. They were afraid to check her flat in case John was there and he might attack them. So they went round to Grace's flat and had a neighbour call in. Grace was there. She was terrified. Cullen had kept her captive for six hours. He'd picked on her after a number of other women had fought him off. One had even climbed out the window of his car as he attempted to drive her away. All the Irish girls stayed away from the canal after that. They were terrified of John Cullen and what he might do. And this was how the Gardaí discovered that he had been responsible for Dolores' death. Everyone was talking about it. The women couldn't work and the men weren't getting any money. John was despised and something needed to be done. Eventually, Grace went to the Gardaí and explained what had happened to her and what Lynn had told her about the fire and what she'd heard Cullen say about Dolores. The Gardaí then picked up Lynn and they showed her the statement her friend had made and so Lynn decided to make a statement too. She thought she would be charged and expected it but she couldn't live with the knowledge that she had been there when John Cullen had set fire to the home of her friend with two elderly women in it. A few months later, when she was giving her deposition in court, Cullen's lawyers had stood up to say that Lynn needed to take legal advice before telling her story, the one that would implicate his client, because she could face charges herself. Lynn told the court that she understood that, but she wanted to go ahead anyway. It was only after that that the DPP sent her a letter saying she wouldn't be charged. There was no deal. In the meantime, while the trial was still months off, Lynn found herself in danger. According to her story in McGill, Cullen had put a hit out on her. She and Grace again went to Gardee and were put under protection. After the trial, she lived with a feminist author, June Levine. And it was during this time that Lynn wrote a book. It served as a form of therapy, though she also received professional counselling from a prominent Dublin psychologist. A year later, Lynn picked up and left for England, where she continued to live in hiding, trying to keep her location from Cullen and his associates. She was frightened of him, even though he was in jail and she was in England. Cullen's appeal came before the courts in March of 1985. It was rejected. The court found that there had been proper instruction of the jury and that the trustworthiness of the accomplice witness was a matter for the jury to decide. In 2003, John Cullen came before the parole board for the first time after serving 20 years of his life sentence. He was refused parole. There has been no further mention of him in the Irish press. In 2008, Lynn Madden wrote a follow-up to her original memoir about her life after Cullen's trial and how she went about picking up the pieces of her life. When asked by June Levine, writing for McGill, why Lynn had felt the need to tell her story, Lynn laid her reasoning out in plain language. 
it was a warning. She said, quote, I'd like the story to deter women from going onto the streets, to show them the reality of it. But most of all, I hope that they will believe that the pimps in my book, in all their guises, are true to life. Vicious, slave-owning bloodsuckers. It's not the clients who destroy women. It's the pimps. When I think of my freezing feet all those years, all those nights standing out in the cold, for a pimp sitting in a pub somewhere, and the ones unique to Ireland who support their wives and families off the women on the canal. Nowhere else in the world do pimps live with their wives while living off another woman. Many a woman has had to work extra hours to pay for Holy Communion clothes for the pimp's legitimate children. And I'll always be looking over my shoulder. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Gina Orr, Margaret Scherfey, Mark Martinez, Isabella Moen, Jackie Hutchinson, Leandra Tilly, and Catherine Bond. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and mens rea goodies on offer, so please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Don't forget to sign up for ExpressVPN and get three months free at expressvpn.com forward slash mens. Now is definitely the time to expand your streaming services and go and check out Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. I promise you, it is a super fun, relaxing way to while away all those new work from home hours. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So please do go check them out. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. article was prejudicial, was prejudicial, was prejudicial, wasn't prejudicial.